So, Parashat Bereshit. We are beginning. This is the beginning of the year. First parasha, beginning of Kriyas Torah. What's the first thing Hashem created? Now you're right. One second, you're right. Bereshit Bereshit so Shamayim presumably is the first thing created, or Shamayim and Aretz. And you're right, I'm telling you you're right, and now that I told you you're right, you're also wrong. Because what was the first thing Hashem created? Oh, energy, who said energy? Ah, nope. First thing Hashem had to create. Pardon? Hashem didn't create the Torah. The Torah is part of Hashem's process. It always... It always was. The Torah is the thought process of Hashem. It cannot have been created. It always was. Right? There isn't an aspect of Hashem that wasn't. What was the first thing created? Breshi, which means what? Well, before there is creation, there's only Hashem, right? And Hashem always was and always will be. Ain't sof. Right? Hashem always was. There was no concept of a beginning. There was no concept of a beginning. So the first thing Hashem has to do is create the concept of a beginning. Every time you have a beginning... It smacks of creation. That's why beginnings are so powerful. First moment you meet the right girl. First moment you open up a Gemara. And first moment you start the Torah. And first moment at the beginning of Charisman. It's all very powerful. And what you do with those moments sets the tone for the rest of the year. And I want to tell you something just as an aside because people misunderstand this. Right? You know, you may have heard me say on Rosh Hashanah, there's a whole discussion, uh, I quoted for you, I showed you the Mishnabura, the Ramah, that it's okay to go to sleep on Rosh Hashanah afternoon if it's in order to have Chizuk and Avodah Hashem. And uh, the things that you do on Rosh Hashanah, they set the tone for the entire year. So if you had a good Rosh Hashanah, a meaningful Rosh Hashanah, then you're going to have a meaningful year. So somebody might be thinking, oh my God, we're starting off this month, we're starting the year with such a terrible, like people are being slaughtered and murdered and just horrible. It must mean we're going to have a terrible year. Well, so Baruch Hashem, there's another idea. There's another idea, the Chazal saying. Ke godel ha-nefila, kach godel ha The greater the fall, the greater the arising. The greater the destruction, the greater the redemption. If we could start this year with such a terrible Simchas Torah, then that means that we are in for an incredible year. Because there's a miracle coming. Not everybody in the world is going to recognize it's a miracle. They should think it's par for the course. That's what the Israeli army does. You know, it's par for the course. 39 scuds fall in the Gulf War. Buildings are destroyed. Whole blocks are destroyed. Nobody gets killed. Is that just incredible luck or is it a nace? Wait and watch. There's a nace coming. You can, you can smell it. And because this was so horrific, this nace, this, this redemption is going to be unbelievable. It's going to be unbelievable. So we're headed into a special year. And I want to share with you an idea. You know, I know that uh, some of you, maybe some of you still, I don't know, are struggling to stay, to go. You know, uh, I understand Rabbi Leo D. spoke to you. And he mentioned, you know, what to say when your parent says, come home. And he said, what you should say is, no, you come home, right? Chazak, right? Uh, it's true, we're home. This is where we belong, right? And... And along with everything else, and I just want to add this again, I said this before, there's a difference between having an opinion and judging other people for having their opinion. 
I don't judge anybody. I, you know, you didn't grow up here. You didn't prepare for the army the way the kids here did. You should not feel an ounce of guilt at the fact that you're not in the army. I think it's a worthwhile struggle to have. You know, do we, what do we do with this, this Medina that we've been given, this gift of having a state or whatever? But I don't, uh, I, don't, I don't have an opinion that everybody here is meant to go to the army, right, at all. And I feel the same way about everything else. You know, you have this decision to make. It's a decision you make every single day. You make it for the rest of this year, you'll make it next year, you'll make it forever. Do I want to be here? Do I want to be there? It's your decision. But every once in a while I get to venture an opinion. And I'm definitely going to give you an opinion as to why I think staying in this instance is a smart thing to do. Not to mention being the right thing to do. But okay. So, his eyes should have given him away. But I was only in the army about four months. I had just, uh, I was finishing my uh, second stage of basic training in tank school. And, uh, and I didn't know any better. And uh, to this day, it kills me that I didn't understand what a gift I'd been given. Sometimes in life you have this unbelievable gift, you don't appreciate it. I was once walking through the Rover Square and I, I happened to notice where Aaron was sitting on that low wall near the Chorva Synagogue. And there's a guy sitting next to him, uh, you know, a shtickle, a hippy-dippy. You know, he's got like a ponytail and a bunch of earrings. And he's looking like, you know, he's like uh, high on God or something else. I don't know, whatever. And he was a searcher. Like people come from all the world to Yerushalayim and they're searching and they're looking for meaning and spirituality. And he looked like the type of guy who had a lot of questions. I could be wrong, right? And I'm looking at this and I realize all the questions he has in his life about God, existential issues, he's sitting to one of the best people in the world to answer those questions. And he has no idea where he is. No idea. Right? Imagine that you, 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 you need blessing in your life and you happen to sit down next to the Lubavitcher Rebbe and you have no idea who you're sitting next to. And we often have that experience. This was that experience for me. I had been awarded, um, I, I was given some kind of, I don't even remember exactly what I was, distinguished cadet, whatever. Whatever. I was a chayal bodeh, it looked good, whatever, fine, right? So they gave me this award, and what it meant was that instead of, you know, um, getting, you know, having the end of the ceremony and whatever certificate you get, you get from your commander, they call you up, and it's a big deal, and, you know, there are big commanders that are there, and they come and they award you whatever they award you. Now, it was a little depressing for me because I was a lone soldier and I got this great honor and there was no one there to celebrate. I had nobody, you know, like... Uh, actually, a friend uh, who heard about this came and she came with a little sister and uh, they had the dog with them. And so there was somebody that I knew. It was such a bracha that they did that for me. But, you know, my parents were there, my family was there, I had no friends, there wasn't. And they gave me a rank. It was the first time I got a rank. It was private first class. They had to stand in the Israeli army... Three stripes is sergeant. Two stripes is corporal. One stripe is, is, is private first. Nobody wears private first class. It's like embarrassing to walk around with that. Right? It's like, I want you to know that I'm nothing. Like, if you don't have any rank, maybe I got a rank and I'm just not wearing it. But if I show you, I'm, I'm a nebuch, right? But I wore it for one day because we got out uh, the, day, the next day. And my brother was three days before getting his sergeant stripes at the end of 17 months in the paratroopers. So for one weekend, I outranked him. So I wore the rank so I could walk into our apartment and say, Kumara, get up! Salute your superior! Ah, oh, it was great. It was sweet, right? He didn't think it was funny. Anyway, so the guy who pinned the rank on me, right, was a fellow named Yossi Ben Hanan. Now, I had no idea who Yossi Ben Hanan was. 
and he was uh, he was the Kashnara, the Ktin Rashi, the head of the entire armored corps, the entire tanks corps. And there was something about his eyes. He had these steely blue gray eyes. I still remember them, right? And he talks to you for a minute. And he says to you, you know, uh, where are you from, right? And I said, uh, you know, New York. He looks at me and goes, Takavalomi, New York. And not from New York anymore. And I was like, oh, right, good answer, right? Ready for a right time, right? And, uh, and he said to me, you know, you're now becoming a part of the family of, of the Armored Corps. You're joining a Moreshet, a tradition uh, of greatness. Live up to it. And then he went to the next guy. So afterwards, I got curious, who is this guy? Because everybody was like in awe of him. And I found out who he was. There's a famous picture. You can look this up online. There's a famous picture that was actually published on Life magazine of an Israeli soldier who was bathing in the waters of the Suez Canal on like the fifth day of the, the fourth day, whatever it was, of the, of the six-day war. You have to understand, the Suez Canal was like, you know, it was more Egyptian than the Nile. That, that the Israeli army had arrived the Suez Canal not 20 years after the state was born. That we took out the whole Egyptian Air Force, the army was unbelievable. To see an Israeli soldier swimming in the Suez Canal was unbelievable. And he was very handsome, and he's looking up at the sun and at the camera with his shy smile. He became the poster boy for the Israeli army. But that wasn't the story that caught my eye. The story that caught my eye was the Yom Kippur War. October 6, 1973. Kathmandu, Nepal. Yossi ben Khanan, by this time, this is now six years later, has become a battalion commander in the 188th Brigade, Khativa Meashmuni Vishmone. I'm going to tell you their story when we go up to the Golan. And he had finally, after, you know, I mean, I think he was a, an officer already in the, so you're talking about eight, nine years of endless patrols and all night missions and ambushes and tank cleanings, just non-stop. He had finally married his sweetheart, and he was on their honeymoon. They were on their honeymoon. And they were traipsing, they were actually on a motorcycle, they were traipsing through the, 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 the mountains of Nepal. And they had arrived in Kathmandu for Yom Kippur. Pretty strange place to celebrate Yom Kippur, but okay, not a deeply religious boy, no keep on his head, but whatever. And uh, they get to Kathmandu, and his honeymoon. He's off. He's got a month off. He's a battalion commander. It's a serious officer. Just so you understand what a battalion is, okay? You know, um, uh, uh, there's eight men in a squad, a kita. Okay? There's three squads in a platoon, in a machlaka. Okay? Now, that's an officer. That's a lieutenant who commands the platoon. Right? There are, in tanks, there are three tanks in a platoon. There's three platoons in a company. So if you're a company commander, you command 11 tanks. That's already serious armored power. And you're probably a captain. Three bars, right? A battalion is three companies. Along with support companies, there's usually a company of infantry, a company of mortars. You're commanding hundreds of men. This is a serious officer. But he's on his honeymoon. So what do you do if you're in Kathmandu? And somebody else is already commanding your battalion, right? And you're on your honeymoon. And you hear there's a war. Well, you probably say, Oy vey, and you want to listen to what's going on the radio, <coughs> unless you're Yossi ben Hanan. Yossi ben Hanan, they walk into, how do they hear this news? They're in the middle of nowhere. They didn't have, like, there's no Wi-Fi. They walk into this uh, hotel in the middle of Nepal, India, Chvesnisht, 
and there's some guy who's running the inn that they walk into. You know, you're not talking about five stars. You're talking about a bed and a mat and a chreisnish, right? We'll give you a little uh, tea with some stuff that'll make you fly, right? And the guy walks in and he says, oh, so sorry, Israel, so sorry, Israel. He's like, what are you talking mm-hmm. about? That's how they find out on Yom Kippur afternoon that their country's at war. But you're on your honeymoon. But you're Israeli. They drop everything. They get on their motorcycle and they drive to the airport. They, get, they manage to get a flight out. They can't get a flight to Israel. They get a flight to Bombay, to, to, to in India. And they find out that there's one flight leaving for Tel Aviv in 40 minutes. But it's the other side of the airport. And if they don't get there in eight minutes, they're going to close the gates, they're going to miss the flight. So they're running through the airport and he's afraid they're not going to make it. So he turns around and grabs his wife. You know, they're backpackers, right? They have these big packs and whatever. He grabs his wife's pack, throws it on the ground, grabs his pack, throws it on the ground, grabs their passport, says, leave it. And they run to the plane. And they make the flight. And they land in Tel Aviv and they somehow let their dad know and his dad comes to pick them up at the airport in Tel Aviv. Right? Comes to pick them up. And the dad's, you know, they just got married. And Yossi looks at his dad, he goes, Makoi, like what's going on? And his dad says to him, it's bad. So what do you do? Your dad came to pick you up at the airport. You're on your honeymoon. But the country's at war. What do you do right in that moment? You get in the car and you go home, drop your stuff, whatever. Now, he says, okay, ten lit auto, give me the car. He takes his father's car, leaves him and his wife to figure it out, gets in the car and drives up to the Golan. Because you're a battalion commander. And he finally arrives at the front lines in Nafakh, in the base that's controlling all this, which has not yet been overrun. Or sorry, it was overrun and now they've recaptured it. And he rehooks with his unit. And things are pretty bad. Of the entire 188th and the 7th, 188th is wiped out. Yitzhak Ben I'm a close friend of his, is dead. Um, the deputy brigade commander is dead. Two of the battalion commanders are dead. I mean, it was a, it, they were decimated. There are almost no tanks left. They pulled them off the line, had to rebuild the 188th. He gets up there, and Janos Bengal has 17 tanks. That's it. There are four tanks in the 188th that are left to defend the Golan. What are you going to do? But, uh, but you're Yossi Ben Hanan, and your country's at war. So you go out to war. And it's a long story, which we don't have time for. He's actually injured on the first day of the fighting. He gets blown off his tank. He gets himself patched up and gets back on his tank and he's, and he's fighting. He ends up in a, a mutzav. They, they come up, one of the, 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 the mutzavin, to tell him there to surprise the Syrians from the rear. And they're spotted and they're hit and he's blown off his tank. There's a whole story. They got stuck there in the middle of the night. He was wounded. And uh, Yoni Netanyahu, who's uh, in Sayyid Matkal, walks into the radio room and he understands on the, on the radio what's going on. And Janos Bengal understands they have to get Yossi Ben Hanan out of there. So Yoni Netanyahu says, I'll go. And they mount a mission and they come up the back and they surprise the enemy and they, they save Yossi Ben Hanan. Unbelievable story. At the end of this war, Raful Eitan, who would later be the chief of staff of the Israeli army in 1982, says to these men, you carried Israel on your shoulders. You saved the state of Israel. Janos Bengal is mounting a counterattack with 17 tanks against 400 Syrian tanks. 
and things are terrible. And the command center in Nafach, which is trying to eat, orders him to retreat. It says, pull back down off the Golan, over the Gesher, Benot Yaakov, we're going to blow the bridges, and we'll start planning a counterattack. And Yanosh Bengal, brigade commander, who I told you about, who came up to the Golan from the Sinai, that whole story, says to them, stop bothering me, and he turns off the radio. And with 17 tanks, he holds and eventually turns 400 Syrian tanks. And a week later, they're outside Damascus. Yossi ben Hanan is in the middle of India, in Nepal. And he hears that there's a beautiful orchard. And the trees in that orchard are his closest friends. And they're being cut down one by one. And he stops what he's doing, and he says, I need to get home. Now, why do I tell you this story? I want to tell you an unbelievable idea. It's hidden in Parshat Breshit. Somebody here asked me a question. I think it was Jack. I didn't give you an answer. I said, you know what? I'll give you the answer tonight. What does the Pasuk say? Right? Shem creates the world. And each day of creation, God says what's going to be. God says, let there be light. And there is light. God says, let the waters gather together and the, and, the, and, the, and the earth will appear. They won't cover the earth. And that's what happens. Right? This is in Perak Aleph, Pasuk Yud Aleph. It's the third day. Okay? Let the land grow grass. Let the plants grow. Grasses that will produce seeds. Eats pri Fruit trees that will make fruit. Each according to their kind. So the next passage says, deshe. So God says there's going to be grass. There's grass. Asif mazriazera limineu. And there's seeds. The eats osepri. And trees that produce fruit. What's the problem? Should I read it again? I'll read it again. Right? God says, let there be eight pri osepri limino. The Pasuk says, what happens? The eight osepri. What's missing? It doesn't say eight pri. The first part of the Pasuk says, eight pri osepri, fruit trees that make fruit. The second part, when it actually happens, says, there'll be trees that make fruit. Why is it not called fruit trees? So listen to this Rashi. This is an unbelievable Rashi. <coughs> Rashi says the following. This is Perak Aleph, right? Chapter 1. Pasuk Yud Aleph. Verse 11. Originally, what does it mean that something is an eitz pri or sepri? tam ketam ha-pri. The way the world was meant to be created was that a fruit tree, the tree was supposed to taste like the fruit. If you have a strawberry, well, that's a bush. If you had an apple tree and you took a piece of the bark and you bit into it, it was supposed to taste like apple. In fact, we wouldn't really say that the, 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 the tree would taste like the fruit. Because if you have a fruit tree, and you would say the fruit tastes like the tree. The tree was supposed to be like the fruit. That's what's supposed to be. Eight, three, or separate. But the Hilo Astakane, 
But it didn't do that. Who didn't do that? Who didn't do that? Not the tree. Let's see, but you're close. But he lost that king. But she didn't do that. Ella. Vatotse ha'aretz. And the earth produced, right, etc. The earth didn't produce trees that tasted like fruit that have fruit. The earth produced trees that have fruit. The trees don't taste like fruit. Veloa eats pri, and the trees weren't like fruit. Lefichach says Rashi, and Rashi is quoting the Medrash Rabbe, right? Rav Shabtai Bas in the Pitre, in the Siftei Chachamim explains this a little more. I'll leave you to look at that if you want. Lefichach shenit kalil adam when Adam later, after the mistake that he and Chava make, is cursed for his iniquity. What's the curse for Adam? Adam is told not to eat from the tree. Does he eat from the tree? Yes. So what's the curse for Adam? Yeah? He has to work the land. Right? What else? Right? You're going to work the land by the sweat of your brow. Okay? The land is cursed for you. Or because of you. You're not going to get to, you're not going to just, just walk around and eat things. You're going to have to work hard. You're going to suffer. You're going to have etzev. Etzev is the opposite of simcha. Simcha is when it's clear there's a purpose. Etzev, therefore, is where it doesn't seem there's a purpose. What modern Hebrew word reflects this? Atzuv, to be sad. Opposite of happiness, right? Where else do I find the concept of etzev? In the curses that are given as a result of the transgression of the tree of knowledge? No? No, no. What does Hashem say to Chava? Be'etzev tel dibanim. You will now give birth. You know how people were supposed to give birth? Oh, the women blew this one. You should not have eaten that fruit. Big mistake. Right? Okay. A woman was supposed to give birth. It's time to give birth. You know, out it comes. You know? Like, uh, like, you know, you get the schmutz out of your ear. Just, you know, it's not a big deal. Nobody says, hang on, I got to get a schmutz out of my ear. No, it's not. Take it out. So, like, you were supposed to, like, you know, nine months. And hang on, I'll be right back. I'm just getting the football out. Right? But now, because you ate from the tree, you're going to have travail. It's going to be a gazunta geshmak mess. It gives birth to the most important bracha in Birchot HaShachah, Shalos Isha. I had a hard time with that bracha until my wife had our first child. Now I get it. <laughs> the Chinese, there wouldn't be a billion Chinese if men were the one who gave birth. We do it once, we would never do it again. It's unbelievable that they want to do it again. We, we're not that. We're not that on a higher level. Oh, I'm going to Gehenna for this tape, but okay, right? Right? Hang on one second. So, the land is cursed. So listen to what Rashi says. Lefichach, therefore, when Adam was cursed for his Why is the land cursed? What did it do? So Rashi quotes the matter and says, Oh, because now Hashem remembers that it also did something not cool. It didn't listen to a curse. It didn't produce trees that taste like fruit. And after the new condition, says, Oh, you're going to be cursed too. We're going to mess you up. They're going to have to plunge into you and plow you and it's going to be a mess. Okay. Now, on the assumption that Midrashim are not meant to be taken literally, right? what is this talking about? First of all, what does that even mean? Like, what do I care? The fruit tree, the tree? Like, what, why is this an important idea? By the way, this is in the first parak of the entire Torah. 
Everything in the first parak of the entire Torah is a, a critical idea. This is where the Torah starts. All these ideas are the foundation, the blueprint for creation. So what's this all about? And if the, how could the lamb do what? I understand. Like, you know, the lamb wakes up one day and says, no, like it's land, it's earth. You pick it up and you put some water in, make it my bone throat at somebody. Well, you know, you plant things in it. The land is deciding, what does it even mean? And if already the land does something bad, why does it only get cursed after Adam Arishon, which is really Adam and Chava, eat from the, make this mistake? And by the way, one last question. Why is there so much talk about trees? <clears throat> why is it all about trees? What's the first mitzvah given to a human being? See, now everybody will say puravu, because halachically, that's a mitzvah that applies to us and appears in Sefer Breshit. And you're right. Look at the Sefer Mitzvah, so that's the first mitzvah, you're right. Now that I said you're right, you're definitely wrong. Why are you wrong? What's the first mitzvah given to a human being, yeah? Pardon? Way before Ashkodes, that's to the Jewish people. That's in Sefer Shmoda, Baja Bo. No, I'm talking about way, yeah? Let me ask you a question. What's the first mitzvah I gave to you as boys in a writer. Does anybody remember? What was the first thing? What does it mean I give you a mitzvah? Right? I give you an imperative. I give you a command. I give you an opportunity. Right? Mitzvah. You have this opportunity to do something because we ask you to do it. First mitzvah I gave you. Take your luggage out to the van. I think. Take it. What if someone says, I don't want to take my luggage out to the van. No, you're not doing the van bus. Take it out of the van. I never had anybody ask me that question, but you know, that's the first mitzvah. Okay. Now that could be very deep. Oh, we get to Israel. We're going to spend the whole year of learning Torah. We have to let go of our luggage, of our baggage. Oh, deep, deep. But you all missed it. That's okay. And that's why it's station a bet. But okay, right? We haven't had a shun a bet joke in a few hours, so we need to do that, right? So, what's the first mitzvah? You know what the first mitzvah is? Mikol eitzagan achol tochelu me'itzadat tovara lo tochal mimenu. You're not allowed to eat from the tree of knowledge. Because on the day you eat from the tree of knowledge, you're going to die. That's a mitzvah. What kind of mitzvah is that? Lotase or ase? Positive, negative? It's a lotase. Now that's a little depressing. Why is the first thing Hashem tells Adam is what not to do? That's, not, that, that's a strange thing. I mean, can you imagine... You know, you meet your girl and you propose and she says yes and you're all excited and you get married and the chuppah's over and the shavrach is over and now you have your first normal day. And you say to her, listen, I just want to give you the rules of what not to do. And she looks at you like, huh? Yeah. Don't mix up the meat and milk. Don't, I don't know, don't smoke in the house. Don't, uh, don't, uh, I don't know. Don't leave the garbage in the... Uh, who would start a marriage like that? Don't do this, don't do that. How about starting your marriage? Like, let's decide that every morning you and I are going to have a cup of coffee together and start our day that way. Oh, that's a mitzvah. That's how you start. Let's not let a day in our life go by without telling each other we love each other. That's a mitzvah. So why does Hashem... The first thing Hashem says is don't... And the first we talk about this. And it's powerful, and it's true. It must be true, because the Ramban talks about it. Okay, but now that I told you that's true, that's not true either. 
Because what really is the first thing that Hashem says to Adam Arisha? If you look at the Psukim, He says, Mikol eitz hagan achol tochel, you can eat from all the trees in the garden, but you can't eat from the Eitzadat. So what's really the first thing I tell is you can eat from any tree in the garden. Now, that may not sound like a mitzvah, but it is. So presumably, on the first day, Adam Arichan, you know, leaves Hashem. Hashem's giving him the blueprint. He says, well, I could eat from any tree in the garden. So what dilemma does Adam Arichan now face? Which trees are you going to eat from? Now, you and I don't think about it this much. Should I have peaches? Should I have bananas? Should I have apples? But that's a decision. Adam Arishon has to make a choice. By the way, why does Hashem make fruit grow on trees? Why not just have tree, fruit fall from heaven? Like the manna. Jews don't have to choose which food they get, but they have no choice. So let's put all this together. Rav Cook has an incredible idea. He says, you know, the tree is what grows the fruit. But the fruit is what you really want. The fruit is the goal. The fruit is always sweet. Guys, when you have a goal in life and you accomplish it, it will always feel sweet. You want to get through a masechta. You want to see what that feels like. I promise you, if you've never completed a masechta attracted in Shas, you owe it to yourselves to do it once this year. It's an incredible experience. To actually have, have seen and thought about, even if you don't remember it all, every line in an entire attracted of Talmud is an incredible accomplishment. And in this yeshiva, we don't take it lightly. You make a siyum, you saw this with Quinta, you make a siyum and you come here and the whole yeshiva pauses and we sing and we dance and I personally think if a guy makes a siyum he should give a kiddush and he should have cake and cookies, but whatever, right? In which case you should have lots of siyums, but okay. And that's always sweet. It, it, there's no way you stand here and finish with and it's not sweet. The tree represents how you get there. It's how you grow that fruit. Now, when Hashem created the world, he wanted the path to be as sweet as the accomplishment. But we got in the way. We make bad choices. We miss opportunities. And so we turn the journey into something bitter. We miss the most important part of the journey, which is the journey should be as sweet as the fruit. It's no big deal to taste sweetness when you're standing up there and you finish Masechta Megillah, Masechta Tanit, Moid Katan Brachos. It's so sweet. But when it's one o'clock in the morning and you're in the middle of a Tosos or you're reading a piece of Gemara and it's like your eyes are falling and it's so hard and you say, I'm going to push myself five minutes. Is that sweet? Can you make that sweet? When you're standing with your son under the chuppah and you're marrying him off and the girl he's marrying is incredible and their family is magnificent and your family is magnificent and, and you think about it, everything that brought you it's so sweet when you're giving your son a bracha because you know he's going into harm's way and you don't know when you're going to see him again can you make that sweet do you get stuck in what you're missing 
But do you realize what a gift it is that Hashem gave this boy into your life? And how proud you are of him. When, 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 when they tell you, and they will, that things are calm, and we can go up to the Golan, we can go on a trip, we can go to a pool. You know, we're already talking about how we're going to rent a pool out and do it. Oh, that's sweet. Can it be sweet when, when you run down to, 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 to the Michlat because there's a siren? If you can make that sweet, then your life is sweet. And it is sweet. It's a gift. It's a gift that we're alive, that we're aware, that we have the ability to go to a Miklat. We decide if we're going to make things sweet. That's why this is in Brachia. That's why this is part of the story of creation. You know, I'll ask you an interesting question. So if you eat from the Eitz Hadat Tovara, what happens to you? On the day you eat from that tree, you will die. Now, that's a difficult question. Do they eat from the tree of knowledge? Yes. Do they die? No. So how could that be? Hashem says this. It can't be wrong. So Ramban says, no, it doesn't mean you're going to die right then. It means... You're no longer immortal. Okay. All right. So before you eat from the tree of knowledge, you must be immortal. You're never going to die, at least according to Ramban. And after you eat from the tree of knowledge, you're mortal. But here's an interesting question. There's another tree. This tree, where is this tree? It's right in the middle of the garden. And Hashem doesn't want you to eat from that tree either. In fact, He's so concerned that you don't eat from that tree, right? If he eats from this one, he's going to live forever. We can't have that. Let's get him out. So they kick us out of the Garden of Eden. Because if you eat from the tree of life, what happens? You become immortal. So what happens before you eat from the tree of life? You must be mortal. So let's think about this. Before you eat from the tree of knowledge. Oh, now we're learning. Before you eat from the tree of knowledge, you should know. The sugi is much better when you do this. This is a whole shtick. Before you eat from the tree of knowledge, you're immortal. Before you eat from the tree of life, you're mortal. So before you eat from the tree of knowledge and the tree of life, which is when we're created, what are we? Are we mortal or immortal? Pretty obvious question. You know what the answer to that question is? Up to you. Up to you. Are you living the life of mortality or are you living the life of immortality? Is this life just a moment? Does nothing matter? Is the burger what counts? Well, okay. Chillin', maybe. Is this life or is this immortality? Am I, am I filling every minute with long distance run? Am I, am I lifne Hashem? Do I recognize what a gift this and every single moment is? That's up to us. It's not a big deal when the goal and the accomplishment is sweet. But when the journey is sweet, I learned this the hard way. I went through a period in my life where I was always depressed. I was in the army. It was just so hard. I would wake up Sunday morning. I had to go back to that Gehenna of screaming and yelling and olive green and gray drab. And it was so hard. And they're pushing you beyond your limits again and again and again. And you can't sleep. And, you're... and eventually I just said, I can't do this. I can't be down all the time. And I decided I had to change my attitude. And you know how I changed my attitude, by the way? Totally changed my life. One simple tool, moderni. What we talked about before. 
I decided to focus on what I have and not what I don't have. Instead of sort of, I'm stuck in a bed, you know, or, or on the ground in a sleeping bag, I'm gifted to be alive and breathing. I have the privilege of being in this place. I'm carrying the Jewish people on my shoulders. What a gift. And if you live your life like that, I'm bummed because, I don't know, I can't go to Tel Aviv right now. Or I'm, in, I'm, 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 I'm filled with the gift of the fact that this situation is going to force me to learn more Torah. It's all up to us. How do we choose to look at the world? That's our beginning. And for whatever reason, Hashem decided that this particular year, He's going to allow us to experience that gift on a whole different level. There are a lot of families in this country right now that have empty chairs at the table. Some of them don't know where those people are or whether they'll ever see them again. There are people in hospitals who are coming to terms with whole new realities, a limb they'll never have, eyesight they don't have, all sorts of other things. There are people who will never ever get to physically hug their child. These are scary and painful and difficult things. And we can choose to focus on that and what we don't have, or we can focus on what we do have. So, Janusz Bengal is being interviewed years later. And they asked him about that. How did you do that? How did you fight the entire Syrian Army Corps, 400 tanks, with 17 tanks? That's ridiculous. And how did you get through such a difficult period? And he said the following. You can look this up online. He said, I want to tell you two things. He said... When we started this war, it was very difficult. But he said, I fell in love with it. I fell in love with the challenge. I fell in love with the moment. I fell in love with the brotherhood. I fell in love with the fact that for every minute of my waking day, I I was carrying the Jewish people on my shoulders. (coughs) I was relying on the greatest of men. It was an incredible experience and I fell in love with it. He says, it sounds strange to say, but I loved that period in my life as painful and difficult as it was. And he finished with a line that stuck with me because it's a Gemara. I don't know if he knew the Gemara and and was quoting it or he just said those words. He says, He said, I understood that I was created for this moment. Every human being, and certainly every Jew, is created for a moment. And you never know what that moment is. And maybe this time is why we're here. And we get to decide what to do with it. Do not underestimate the gift that you are giving to the Jewish people, to the state of Israel. The fact that there is, first of all, on a mystical level, the fact that there is a yeshiva and that you boys are still here and that we're sitting and we're learning Torah and that in the merit of this Torah that the Jewish people should be victorious and and we should achieve peace and all those things, that's extremely powerful. You are a significant percentage of the people that are sitting and learning Torah right now. And when you think about how many people are learning Torah in Yerushalayim, in the old city, which is where every, the whole Jewish world's tefillot are focused to this place, that's enormous. And on a practical level, you know, uh, what's the best way? You know what the best way to deal with stress and anxiety and the unknown? The best way. I mean, there's a mindset, whatever. This. To be part of a brotherhood. To be, to be socially active, to be with others, to share what you're going through, 
to be there for each other, to help each other, to do chesed, that's so powerful. I don't know any place in the world that you can do that like in this place. Revel in that. Live up to the gift that we've been given. And I want to wish everybody the most incredible zman. This should be a, a time of growth. The meat of this year is charev zman. Milk it for all it's worth. I know meat and milk, whatever. Milk it for all it's worth. Enjoy it. Revel in it. Love it. Grow from it. And I look forward to sharing an incredibly fruitful, pun intended, year full of Torah, Arbatah, Torah, and Chesed. Shabbat Shalom.